This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. I could just end my talk and take questions by saying, think very big and be more innovative. Because that's basically what I'm going to say. And I'd like to say at the beginning that we have a problem with this. We collectively and probably individually have huge sexual hang-ups and and are stigmatized ourselves when it comes to dealing with this problem. And that even affects our capacity to do research and do other things. We are incredibly politically correct when it comes to HIV. So first of all, I'm going to go back to something I'm more comfortable with, and that is the first 25 years. I want to go back because past, to some extent, is prologue, and particularly with HIV, past is prologue, because we tend to keep making some of the same mistakes uh, over and over again, and, and some of the things we should learn lessons from could get us to the future. Well, the first lesson was that excellent surveillance is critical for the epidemic, and surveillance has always been the conscience and compass for the epidemic. Uh, And that means that from a population point of view, we have to think about it that way. And recently, uh, UNAIDS has been criticized and a lot of people have been revising their prevalence estimates. Uh, There's different ways to look at this issue as the prevalence seems to be going down in some African countries and and went way down in India. I think the message is of the uncertainty of some of these estimates. And it's amazing how we can believe the estimates from all of the other countries of the world when in our own country, the CDC has estimated flat HIV incidents for the last 13 years with no data, essentially. And we certainly don't believe that, but we can believe the UNAIDS estimates uh, from around the world with greater uh, accuracy. So as they do better surveys, they're going to get better estimates. And what we need to think about is the changes in those estimates and also um, we need to critically ask how good are those estimates. It's important, though, at a national level to have good HIV prevalence and incidence data and good behavioral surveillance data in order to evaluate what's going on with prevention and to target prevention and care resources. How can you go in and spend 35% of your money on abstinence education in schools when people are dying of HIV and we know who's at risk and who isn't? And virtually no one's been tested in the country. And you know that testing is very important. We used to say in the old days that AIDS meant AIDS is different, stupid. And the reason we said that is because it is different, and it's different in very important ways from syphilis. But the other major difference is there's no cure, no treatment. Uh, So contact tracing for syphilis, of course, resulted in, in, in prophylaxis with antibiotics that prevented the occurrence of the infection and treated and cured everybody. Whereas when you find people who are contacts with HIV who are positive, what you do is find somebody for whom you have a medical obligation and antiretroviral therapy for life and maybe drug abuse treatment programs. And a lot of times governments don't want to find those people and come up with those obligations. And, you know, the thing that is the worst problem with HIV is the long period between infection, symptomatic illness, and death. The one thing that's been consistently shown in a lot of studies with HIV is that when people are found to be HIV positive, they reduce the numbers of of partners and unprotected sex with others. But the problem with HIV is that nobody knows who's infected and who isn't. 
And of course, that means there's silent infection and infectivity, and in the community, prevalence greatly exceeds incidence. I mean, basically, most of the people in the world are having sex in a sea of personal ignorance. Now, how can you, you know, the only people that know there are 25 to 30 million people in Africa that are HIV positive are us. The 25 to 30 million people don't know it. Maybe four or five million of them know it. And we expect that we can have some kind of behavioral program without testing most of these people that will result in some kind of lifetime inoculation that they won't get infected. And the way I think that treatment programs will work is not through, in my view, antiretroviral therapy for most people, but rather the promotion of testing and the normalization of HIV. Because in many African countries, HIV is a family disease. And your chance of getting it is much greater than it is to get any other disease in the country or in the, or in the continent because it's a leading cause of death. Now, the most likely, the most important factor in whether or not you get HIV in, in many of the endemic countries and in many high-risk groups in our country is not your own behavior but the likelihood that your partner is infected. And, and that's really the bottom line. And prevalence equals incidence times duration, or incidence equals prevalence over duration, which means basically these things are directly related to each other in a stable HIV environment. So what happens in that stable environment? Well, in most places without treatment, perhaps 10% of people with HIV die each year. So to keep up the epidemic, you only have to have 10% of the people getting infected each year. And you can sort of figure that out with a lot of these serial surveys. And you don't, can't believe a survey where the prevalence goes down by 50% because it doesn't make any sense. Only 10% of the people are dying. How can the prevalence go down by 50%? And you have a situation like the United States when you have highly active antiretroviral therapy that people stop dying. And that's one of the great miracles of science when it came to HIV. But, you know, 40 to 50,000 new infections in the U.S. is perhaps only 2% of prevalence. So that means we're adding another 8%, you know, we're adding each year uh, infected people through lack of dying, and the prevalence goes up. So we have to keep thinking that the risk is intuitively going to keep going up. Now, HIV is highly stigmatizing. You can never say that too many times. But this makes us avoid doing the kinds of studies we need to do, which I think are much larger studies and structural studies. How many of us are afraid to study things like attitudes towards sexual behavior in given religious groups and given countries? You know, how many of us are afraid to study the impact of uh, President Mbeki on HIV transmission in his country? Because it's not really right. You know, it's not our country, you know. We can't do that. You know, how many of us are, are afraid to study the impact of our lack of drug treatment programs or poor medical care and HIV testing in the ghettoized populations in the U.S.? Why should a country like ours even need a Ryan White program? Because we don't have national health insurance. And why does that make our rates three times as high as, as uh, the rest of the industrialized world? Well, you know why it's stigmatizing. It's because of sex and homosexuality and damn drug users and all those people that are dirty people and, and, have, and, and also people die and nobody likes to watch people die. It's kind of scary. They get real skinny. And we're, then we're afraid we might get it from them. And HIV preferentially affects the poor. And even if you like the poor, there's a lot of different things the poor need and they may not even want 
HIV. They may want a lot of other things like um, a job or housing. And there's not too many people. And we have, we have uh, different priorities for the poor. They vary from day to day. And then the status of women in most societies. I sometimes think that the issue really is female empowerment. If you step back and say, what are we going to do to give the women the kind of control they need in society that may not drive you into the laboratory, but it may drive you into thinking about a society laboratory that will improve the status of women uh, through employment mechanisms, microfinance, uh, exploring those societies where the status of women are different and exploring whether the status of women, for example, in different African countries might actually lead to different prevalence rates in those countries. Instead of saying women are always disempowered and we need to go to the laboratory to solve the problem. And then the other major problem is that HIV attacks the immune system. And that means that we've got lots of other problems that HIV makes worse. And it's sometimes very difficult to even know whether we have dealt with all those problems. And then no cure and no effective vaccine is the other thing that differentiates HIV. I want to talk a little bit about the good things that have happened and to just go back into history and remind us how skeptical people were that anything good would happen when it came to HIV. And what I'm worried about now is that the skeptics now may overtake the innovators. The virus was discovered pretty quickly. It took longer for scientists to agree on what to name it than it did to discover it. I know, I was there. Uh, and advances in diagnostic testing even came from people who didn't even believe that HIV caused AIDS. You don't even have to care about this problem to innovate. And maybe there are going to be people who are doing cancer therapy now and developing uh, smart therapies for cancer that might help us with HIV. People who are innovative in other areas, like social development, as King Holmes brought up, might be the ones that can help us, even if they don't care about HIV, as Kerry Mullis helped us with diagnostic testing. And then nobody thought, at least that early on, that there would be good therapy for HIV. After all, viral therapy, antiviral therapy in general, was not very successful. And then there was a lot of skepticism and a lot of resistance uh, to doing anything uh, using AZT during pregnancy, and that worked. And then heart finally gave life. So why should we let the skeptics tell us that there'll never be an effective vaccine and that there'll never be curative therapy? Because we really need both of those things, not just one, to finally eliminate HIV. Now, prevention works, and I want to mention a couple areas where it works in big areas that we seem to ignore. Uh, and there's a parallel between why this works, and it has to do with sexual openness and acceptance in, in a community, and, and to some extent, relative wealth. Uh, the incidence was reduced in the gay community before there was any antiretroviral therapy. Uh, back in the old days, of the late 70s and early 1980s, um, gay men were getting STDs at, at extraordinary rates. Uh, bathhouses were filled with gay men. Uh, gonorrhea, 75% of the syphilis in the United States was in gay men. Um, gay men all got hepatitis. Uh, B, in, in, in non-A, non-B, as it was called then, amoebiasis, uh, non-gonococcal urethritis, anal gonorrhea, and the lifestyle was uh, moving along. 
When AIDS came along um, and testing for HIV came along, uh, the gay community revolutionized their behavior. And HIV transmission rates in the presence of a very high prevalence of HIV, when it was much harder to reduce incidence, remember that relationship, dropped dramatically. Some due to saturation, but mostly due to widespread behavior change, sero-sorting, hard to prove this. Gay men got tested. Uh, people stopped having sex with each other without condoms if they knew who was positive and who was negative. And they accepted each other within their own community. A very sexually active but sexually open community. Now, some minority gay men didn't participate in this revolution to the same extent. And I think their prevalence stayed high and their incidence is higher now. And there's some uh, backsliding now that nobody's paying attention to AIDS much anymore. But this really worked. Now, where's the country that has had the most dramatic HIV uh, incidence declines is Thailand. Thailand, the country that we all know, is a, a sexual vacation spot where men of all types of religious orientation, despicable men, <laughs> go and have sex with prostitutes. And everybody knows it. And it happens. And we don't like it. And they had horrible rates of HIV going up, and they used serologic data, and they had enormous leadership with a condom campaign that decreased attendance at, among prostitutes, uh, decreased STD rates dramatically, and decreased HIV incidence rates. Some of us may not like the way they did it. They, we may not have liked Thailand to begin with. Uh, we may not approve of their own behavior. That's not our sexual hang-up either. We're right. Um, <laughs> But isn't it interesting that Thailand, and then there's Brazil. Now, you know, the gay community, Thailand and Brazil, and their sexual openness is what got them in trouble to begin with, right? <laughs> Lots of STDs, as it, which is a great predictor, by the way, for HIV in a new country. Lots of STDs. But the sexual openness allowed them to address it frankly and candidly and move back downward again. Do we ever study that? Is there anything more important to study? Am I full of it? If I, what if I'm right? Just think about that. What if I'm right? And we know lots of things that work, and a lot of it is the linking between testing and care. So why is HIV prevention so difficult then? Well, first of all, it's because of poverty and resource scarcity. Stigma is a huge problem. And then the politics of HIV prevention are international and national while well, prevention is interpersonal and at the community level. And I'm going to give Jim McIntyre the ABCs and let him pack it off and take it for good, because this, I think, is about the worst term that ever came along when it comes to prevention, because it makes it sound so simple. You know, any little two-year-old learns their ABCs. It's an infantilized approach to something that's much, much more complicated. And, of course, it doesn't ever mention HIV testing. It doesn't mention knowing your HIV status, which again is the major predictor of what happens. People have always made the difference, persons with HIV, very unusually, the doctors, the caregivers, the scientists, and other concerned leaders. So how about the next 25 years? What's going to happen? Well, there's going to be factors beyond our control, and I'll just mention a couple that I think we should think about. One is globalization and migration. 
Uh, you know, it's interesting to think about that. We don't usually in public health. Um, and some of these things are good. But it's interesting that we always can understand the biology problems much faster than we can understand the sociology and economic problems. And a lot of us don't want to get into that, but I think we need to. There's some good and bad things about globalization when it comes to HIV. I'll mention the bad things first, and then I'll mention the good things. One of the bad things is that sexual and drug-abusing opportunities and lifestyle influences migrate faster than communities adapt to them. So what will the risk for the democratized nations be? Another bad thing is that globalization is often about economics. And the forces of globalization and urbanization uh, increase the economic output, mean economic output, but they highlight inequalities and disparities. The other thing is that, that globalizers tend to control access to innovation. On the other hand, communication and knowledge goes much faster with globalization, along with global concern and global activism in breaking down those patent issues and dealing with issues like PEPFAR that couldn't have heard, occurred without it. So I think that the biologic and social factors, I will predict that the virus and the host will be about the same 25 years from now as they are now. Will, transmi will transmissibility increase? Maybe it'll decrease with more people in therapy. Uh, maybe the population mortality will change. Fewer people will be alive and the prevalence will go up. Or people will die faster due to XDR-TB and things like this. The social factors, poverty, stigma, and the status of women are things that we will continue to have to deal with and we'll have to weed the gardens. And then HIV, its effect on the immune system, I think will bring us new infections and new conditions that we have yet to anticipate. And the one that scares me the most is XDR-TB, which I think has a great potential not only for death, but also for social disruption. I think this could be the SARS uh, for Africa. Uh, how bad does it have to get before we're afraid to go there? You know, what if that happens? Now, in terms of others, innovations in science, I mentioned before that we should not modify our goals to meet our scientific knowledge. This is one of the things that's bothered me the most, in a sense, when I think about science. It used to be we dreamed and thought crazy things. You know, uh, we'll have a vaccine in two years. We'll have a vaccine in 10 years. Now we're starting to say, well, we'll have a vaccine, but it won't really work, and it's not gonna prevent infection, it's only gonna prevent disease. And we can't really prevent anything, King, at the community level, so we'll go back to the lab. Or, or maybe we'll set up a clinic we're not going to get everybody circumcised, but we're going to set up three clinics and circum circumcise 100 people a year. You know, I mean, meanwhile, there's you know, 400 million people a year being born. We're not going to try to do things like change community norms and suggest that the entire country circumcise itself and understand the factors that do that. I mean, there are some countries that actually circumcise everybody. And then there are countries that circumcise nobody. What's the difference? And how did it get to be that way? And how can we change that? And how can we have new community norms? Uh, we've lost our innovation, perhaps. So therapeutic advances. I, I'm sure there will be new targets and new agents 
but will they be curative? What new therapies will really make a difference? Well, I think we have to think about finding curative therapy. That's the thing that will really reduce prevalence and also motivate people to find everybody who's positive and treat them. What other innovations could we have? Therapy's too damn complicated. I mean, what can really be innovative to make a difference in the world? So we need to think about curative therapy. HIV vaccine. Well, I think now most people are saying if, not when. And then, if yes, will it prevent initial infection? Well, I think the need, the first one has to be yes, because we need it, and we can't give up on the quest for a vaccine. And I would say that it has to prevent initial infection. I can't even think of how you can study it if it doesn't prevent initial infection. And if it doesn't prevent infection, what kind of impact will it really have? Who would take it ourselves? You know, let alone market it to the world and try to get people to buy it. Microbicides. Well, I think there will be a safe and efficacious microbicide. But there will be modifiers of, of effectiveness, and I think uh, they concern me. One is the issue that with spermicides for a long time, when spermicides are used, and they still are, they're much more effective when they're used concomitantly with the diaphragm. And then there's the issue of condom substitution effect that Nancy Padian found in her study with diaphragm use. And then there's, of course, even if it works, the issues of the behavioral factors. And it's not going to make a big impact unless it's used in the highest risk subgroups of women. Now, a very high priority is research on structured interventions in populations and better understanding of HIV trends. One of the things that's most disturbing to me is that we watch all of these sero-surveys going on in African countries with all these dramatic changes, and we almost lack curiosity about them. I mean, what are the differences? What do religious differences mean? I mean, do we really think that all religions are the same in terms of HIV transmission? We pretend they are. Oh, everybody has sex. There's homosexuality everywhere. Everyone uses drugs. That's crap. There's huge differences in behavior between populations, and we pretend it doesn't occur. I mean, people come up to me honestly and they say, how come Saudi Arabia doesn't have as much HIV as Africa? You know? And I say, well, it's, you know, I mean, I mean why don't we study these things? Because we're going to alter them with globalization. We're going to go in and take HIV into these Muslim countries unless we, unless we lose some more wars. And then they'll be bringing something to us. <laughs> why can't we study these things? Is there anything more important? And the integrated community approaches are extremely important. And then why don't we study the concept of the link between therapy and HIV counseling and testing in these countries? And then maybe my biggest concern is that we'll put a clamp on HIV prevention efforts when our capacity to do treatment uh, fills up. Chuck and I have had this conversation about how much counseling and testing should force treatment. I mean, what if you test three times as many people as you treat? Or what if the health system can only afford to treat the two million that are already treated and not the second two million or the third two million? Do you close the counseling and testing clinics so that the people don't know their HIV infection status? Or do you just let them keep on getting tested because you know that they'll transmit less often to their partners and to their discordant partners? So where are we going to be in 25 years? 
Well, you know, if there's four to five million people now, that means another hundred million people. That's more than we had in the first 25 years. Is it inevitable? I think in the U.S. we'll have a continued problem dealing with this. And, you know, we're at a fairly low incidence rate relative to prevalence. I think CDC will struggle to come up with good incidence figures. And then unless we start paying more attention to high-risk populations in the U.S., and linking it to care and doing a lot more testing and counseling in those populations, with probably federal and local dollars, will have continued incidence. I believe the prevalence in Africa will decline in, in most countries over the next 25 years, and I, I hope that we take advantage of trying to figure out why. How much of it is due to saturation? How much of it is due to integrated prevention treatment programs? How much of it is due to cultural change? I believe that in Africa, if enough people are tested, they'll be like gay men in San Francisco because they too won't want to die and that there will be changes in culture, but not uniform changes, and unless we study it, we won't know why. Asia's a big place. Asia's many, many different countries and many, many different cultures, and the best way to guess what's going to happen is to really honestly study the countries the amount of social control those countries have, their religious beliefs, and particularly the amount of injecting drug use and STDs that the population already has. So why does there have to be 100 million more as long as we know what's happening? And we can stop it in leadership. The international community can stop it by providing consistent and ample resources for counseling and testing and treatment, doubling PEPFAR, tripling PEPFAR, encouraging our other countries to do that. International corporate leadership, every international corporation can provide HIV prevention and care for all of their employees and family members and prohibit dis discrimination. Government officials have to begin by being open about HIV and encouraging frank and candid discussions, then prohibiting discrimination in their own countries and communities while providing prevention and care to the extent they can afford to. Individuals and communities who are HIV positive and many others have to be willing to confront the AIDS epidemic and to embrace the people with HIV instead of discriminating against them. And then the scientists, that is us, need to think bigger, much bigger, and don't let our goals be limited to the horizons of our current scientific knowledge. Don't say, well, the only best we can do is a vaccine that will prevent disease, because that's all we think we know. So we're going to set our goals that way. The best therapy we can come up with is to prevent the next type of resistance, because we know a cure isn't possible, and depot drugs will just be unfeasible. Don't think that way. Don't think that we can't study communities and religions and different populations because it's too politically difficult or because of our own personal sexual hang-ups. Think outside the box. Think bigger. Be innovative. Don't be afraid. And then caregivers will continue to be key people uh, as leaders in, in the future. So HIV in, in the future, with our leadership, our scientific innovation, and I hope a, a, a bit of good luck, will help us save lives millions at a time. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.